This is Pennsylvania Legacies, the podcast series from the Pennsylvania Environmental Council. I'm Josh Rollerson. Our deep decarbonization conference is coming up in less than two months. It'll bring researchers, policy experts, advocates, and political leaders together for two days in Pittsburgh to talk about making drastic reductions in carbon emissions from Pennsylvania's energy sector. Unlike a lot of climate conferences, this one will have a special seat at the table for energy companies. It's one thing to have a bunch of enviros in a room talking to each other about what the world needs to do. It's a whole nother when you have fossil fuel companies, when you have nuclear generators, when you have uh, wind farm developers, when you have um, representatives from the DOE and the DEP and legislators all in a room discussing this together. And where better to have that conversation than in the birthplace of the U.S. energy industry? a state that remains one of the nation's top electricity producers. There's just this feeling that if you can talk about this in a place like Pennsylvania with with its coal legacy, with its current natural gas industry, with all these amazing different types of energy sources, you can you can do it anywhere. PEX Lindsay Baxter joins us to preview the conference and the year ahead in energy and climate coming up. First, a look at some Pennsylvania environmental news headlines from the last week. It's official, natural gas is now the primary fuel for electric power generation in the United States. The U.S. Department of Energy reports gas has overtaken coal for the first time, now supplying more than a third of the nation's electricity as of 2016. Compare that to 30 percent still generated by coal-fired plants. It comes amid a historic slide in natural gas prices, which fell to a monthly average of $2.49 per million BTUs last year. That's the lowest it's been since the 1990s. DOE says a warm winter contributed to lower demand in the early months of 2016, but prices were rising again by the end of the year with a surge in residential and commercial use. November marked another milestone as the U.S. became a net exporter of natural gas on a monthly basis for the first time in 60 years. 2016 was one of the driest years on record for parts of Pennsylvania, and at the start of the new year, nearly half the state is still under drought conditions. That's according to a report from the Department of Environmental Protection, which last month added four more counties, Union, Snyder, Mifflin, and Juniata, to its drought warning list. Carbon, Lehigh, Monroe, and Northampton counties have been under a warning since November, while drought watch status remains in effect for 26 others. DEP says January precipitation's taken some of the pressure off eastern Pennsylvania, but the central part of the state's gone from bad to worse, with 90-day precipitation deficits of up to four inches in places. As of this week, Snyder County is more than 13 inches below average annual precip. Residents of the eight counties under drought warning are being asked to voluntarily cut their water consumption by 10 to 15 percent. In the Watch counties, the state's asking for voluntary reductions of 5 percent. On the state's northwestern corner, warmer-than-average winter temperatures mean there's less ice cover along the shores of Lake Erie this year, and that's contributing to erosion on sand beaches like those at Presque Isle State Park. GoErie.com reports the Presque Isle Advisory Committee got a briefing this week from park officials who warned there's little prospect of help from the federal government. Park manager Matt Green says they're looking at their second straight year with no federal funding for sand replenishment projects, leaving DCNR to fund the work on its own. And with national attention focused on the problem of lead in drinking water, health officials in the Pittsburgh area say the presence of lead paint in homes is a much bigger concern. Allegheny County Board of Health is considering a new regulation that would require regular testing of infants and toddlers for lead poisoning. 
A majority of homes in the county were built before the 1978 ban on lead paint took effect, and the health department's worried about kids being exposed to lead in old paint chips. Within the city, a history of industrial pollution means there's an additional risk from lead in the soil. If approved, the regulation would require proof of lead testing to be submitted along with immunization records before a child starts kindergarten. And Philadelphia may soon join Pittsburgh and 14 other U.S. cities in the 2030 District Program. The initiative is designed to encourage commercial property owners to cut their energy use, water consumption, and transportation-related emissions in half by 2030. The Delaware Valley Green Building Council has published a policy framework to establish a 10 million square foot 2030 district in Philadelphia by this October. Organizers told Plan Philly companies have already committed 7.5 million square feet. Pittsburgh signed onto the project in 2013. This month, we've been bringing you conversations with PEC program staff about what's on their agendas for 2017. Next up is Energy and Climate Program Manager Lindsay Baxter, who's been busy organizing our spring conference, Achieving Deep Carbon Reductions, Paths for Pennsylvania's Energy Future. She's also been thinking about low-impact hydropower and the concept of sustainability. Here's Lindsay Baxter in conversation with PEC President and CEO David Woodwell. It's hard to believe that 2016 is almost over. I feel like we were just starting it yesterday, but I think there's been a lot of continued focus on our work with low-impact hydro, with um, alternative energy projects of all all types, really, energy efficiency, and the work that we've been doing to queue up this conference that we're going to do in the spring on the topic of deep decarbonization. And so I think, what is that? Yes. <laughs> so deep decarbonization, I mean, I can answer the question of why we do the work we do with energy by kind of defining deep decarbonization. I mean, all of our work around energy, whether it's um, efficiency or or related to um, natural gas and, and impacts associated with that or renewable sources, um, it all falls into this goal of reducing greenhouse gas emissions. Um, climate change is one of, if not the most significant challenge environmentally that we face in Pennsylvania. It's going to exacerbate all of the other environmental challenges we face. It's deserving of some attention. And this deep decarbonization concept is all about, instead of looking at short-term goals, you know, maybe a 20% reduction in greenhouse gases or a 30%, it's looking at where do we need to go long-term and let's just build the plan to get there. What the scientists are saying is that we need to be looking at something like 80% reduction in greenhouse gases, if not more, by mid-century. So when you look at things like the Clean Power Plan that are setting um, goals of 30% reduction just for the power sector, um, the types of projects that you might invest in to get to that 30% might not be the same ones that would be the most cost-effective or beneficial ways to get to an 80% or a 90%. So we're, we're really focused on setting this goal of where do we need to go long-term? Let's figure out the most cost-effective way that brings the most benefit to Pennsylvanians, and let's just do it. So you said plan a couple of times in two contexts. In <laughs> One was to plan to get to that point of de- de- deep decarbonization, wherever that may be, and the other was clean power plan. Mm-hmm. So the first part is there a plan to get to deep decarbonization? Has anybody really done that yet anywhere? 
Not in Pennsylvania, that's for sure. There is a an international project. Um, it's a UN-based project, the Deep Decarbonization Pathways Project, of which the United States does participate. The United States Mid-Century Strategy for Deep Decarbonization was just released about two weeks ago by the Obama administration, and that would be our plan for complying with the goals that were set in Paris at at COP21 last year. Um, The big question that everyone's asking is, you know, does it have any teeth? It's a a plan or a strategy is one thing, and it sets some goals and visions of how to get there. with the changing of administration and some changes underway in Congress, there's a lot of question about um, how much of that's going to be implemented. Which is a good segue into the Clean Power Plan that people hear a lot about that really was something that said to the states, you need a plan by 2030 to figure out how to reduce 33% basically of your greenhouse gas emissions or there will be a federal plan, do your own. A lot of talk about rolling that back, a lot of gnashing of teeth. It's been the Supreme Court, all kinds of things. But Pennsylvania is already likely going to meet those goals without even breaking a sweat. Maybe that's an overstatement, but is that close? Well, we'll get close without breaking a sweat. I mean, much of that is driven by market conditions and fuel switching to natural gas um, because of economic reasons more than anything else. And... uh, Renewables and energy efficiency programs also play a role in that, um, but perhaps not as significant as as fuel switching. So that's kind of where this deep decarbonization concept comes in. Are we are we picking the low hanging fruit, or are we looking at where we really need to go to prevent the worst impacts of climate change? And you're exactly right. The clean power plan now is being decided in the courts, and we hear. Um, our new president-elect saying that perhaps it will be rolled back, even if the D.C. Circuit Court um, upholds it. So, so there's a lot of uncertainty around that, and I think a lot of a lot of people would argue: Does a plan like the Clean Power Plan make the most sense, or? would it be better to just put a price on carbon, whether that's a tax or a trading scheme, and just kind of get out of the way with these, you know, different building blocks and whatnot, and let industry, let uh, the power sector figure out the most cost-effective way to do it. And I think there was a lot of hope that in, in I don't want to say in opposition, but in opposition to the Clean Power Plan, that there might be a group of Republican congressmen and women who would put forth a, an alternate proposal. And I think from the perspective of you know us folks who work in climate protection, we don't necessarily care which way you get there if we find an effective way to start managing carbon emissions. All right. So to do that, you, you've been mentioning deep decarbonization. It's got it's a stool with four legs. It's that great analogy of a stool. So it's looking at a mix of what? And you're talking about the electricity grid, not everything, right? For yeah. The, for the so, sake of the conference. Yes. So for the conference, we're looking um, explicitly at the power sector. And um, there's a couple reasons for that. I mean, one is just that the the topic is so large to be able to have a productive conversation over just a few days. Um, you have to limit. You have to limit the scope of that. And the other, you know, another reason is in Pennsylvania, the electricity sector is the most significant emitter of carbon emissions. If we were in another state, that might not be where we would put all of our focus. And you're exactly right. We tend to think of there being four legs of this stool of 
deep decarbonization as it relates to electricity. And those would be energy efficiency, not just in buildings, but across the entire system. Um, renewable energy, of course. Uh, nuclear power, of which Pennsylvania still has a pretty significant piece of its portfolio. With nuclear, we're looking at the existing plants, as well as is there a potential to to add new? And I think, you know, depending on who you talk to, there's different answers to those. And then the fourth component is carbon capture and storage, which PEC had done some work with, you know, several years ago. And, and some of the focus across the whole state had shifted away from that because of the expense of the system. But um, New technological advances and research at the federal level are indicating that, particularly with natural gas plants, carbon capture and storage may be uh, more economical. And um, quite frankly, I think it's it's appealing to add it to the mix. At this stage of the game, we shouldn't be excluding anything. The urgency of climate change forces us to think about all of the potential options available to us instead of limiting ourselves to one or two technologies and saying, you know, that's it, we're going to do 100% renewable or we're doing 100% nuke or what have you, whatever your favorite is. And so I think when you start opening that conversation to all of the possibilities, you can open up the table and bring a lot more potential partners in. So let me do this. I've been asking the question of a lot of people within our organization, so what? And the so what on this is we're having a conference and it's like big deal a conference. It is a big deal actually. But, you know, what's the goal of trying to impact thinking or action? Because there are already people doing stuff, right? Oh, yeah, of course. Of course. I think the one of the key goals of this conference is to open up a conversation around a deep decarbonization strategy for Pennsylvania. Is that an appropriate strategy? Is there support for it? And what all should it include? And I think another key piece of this is that we're trying really hard to bring in representatives of all of those different sectors, um, all those, those four legs of the stool, as we call them, it's one thing to have a bunch of enviros in a room talking to each other about what the world needs to do. It's a whole nother when you have fossil fuel companies, when you have nuclear generators, when you have uh, wind farm developers, when you have um, representatives from the DOE and the DEP and legislators all in a room discussing this together. So we really see the conference as the start rather than the end. And we're going to be producing a white paper strategy document, roadmap, whatever cliche term you want to use um, in the summer, based in large part on what some of that conversation is during the conference that's going to lead our work. I would like to think that it will help to lead the work of other you know, NGOs and, and, and state agency folks who are interested in this topic by putting all that information in one place. We've had a tremendous response from national level speakers, um, there's just this feeling that if you can talk about this in a place like Pennsylvania with with its coal legacy, with its current natural gas industry, with um, all all these amazing different types of energy sources, you can you can do it anywhere. If we can figure something out here, you can do it anywhere. So it's not just about talking heads. It's really about getting national level and state level folks together to, to try to craft a solution. Yeah, that's the hope. The first day is going to be very... Um, we call it the learning day. So that's where we have a lot of our national level speakers um, doing some very interactive panels on on these four topics. And then the, the second day is really all about getting input from stakeholders, doing a couple breakouts and, you know, not just sitting and listening anymore. 
All right, I'm going to shift gears on you. For the last five years, you have been immersed, that may be a pun or not, in low-impact hydropower work. And it's been an interesting approach to it that started with the question of, you know, Pennsylvania's got all this wind and solar all, all happening, but there was a Penn State study saying there was a whole lot of hydro potential in Pennsylvania that you sort of glommed onto and then wanted to find out why there wasn't more development of that. So you've sort of become the center of this world in Pennsylvania. What's going on? <laughs> for for better or for worse. Yes. <laughs> um, so so when we talk first, I just want to define what we mean by low impact hydropower. Um, there's a couple of different definitions of it, um, but. For us, we wrap it around really the use of existing infrastructure. So Pennsylvania has all of these um, dams, whether those are federally owned Army Corps locks and dams, remnants from past industries, um, reservoirs at state parks um, that that have regular releases of water, regular flows every single day, and that's power that's basically just being lost. So what would be the environmental impacts of adding a simple turbine and generator to that existing infrastructure that's not slated for removal. And in, in many, many cases, it can be done with very little uh, environmental impact. I think one of the biggest challenges that we're identifying right now is Pennsylvania's power prices and our energy prices overall, in large part thanks to low natural gas prices, make it really hard for alternative energy projects to compete um, and, and energy efficiency projects, really. To, to come online. And so I think a lot of PEC's focus has been on trying to queue up these projects, line up who the developers are that are interested in working in Pennsylvania, what the potential projects are, where potential um, opportunities for financing, especially you know low interest financing is, so that when those prices rise, which they will, again, I mean, I'm a homeowner. I love having my lower gas bill in the winter, but we know that that's not going to last forever. Um, so, so kind of queuing up all the pieces that we can now, so that those types of projects are ready to succeed when the time comes. Very cool. And and so Pennsylvania was facing some opportunities, but there were also challenges with the regulatory programs. And I mean, this gets really wonky, geeky. But you were sort <laughs> of able to go in and figure out the differences and actually put out a piece on this, correct? Um, we were. We were. So Pennsylvania, so every um, hydroelectric project um, will have to, or just about every project, depending on its size and specific location, will have a certain level of federal licensing through the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission. Um, it may require permits through the Army Corps of Engineers at the federal level, and then it will require at least three permits that are implemented at the state level through the Department of Environmental Protection. And the way that those different levels of government interact can make it really difficult for a project to make it through in a timely process that satisfies you know, the investors who are bankrolling it. And... Um, we uncovered a few uh, issues of sequencing of how the state permits align with the federal process that are unique to Pennsylvania. And uh, working with partners with the Department of Environmental Protection, tried to identify some ways to maybe, you know, 
certainly not remove any of these requirements, but maybe change the ordering, make it um, a little more simpler uh, for both parties, for the regulatory agency, which is struggling with you know, cuts in staff and funding year after year and make it a little bit easier for the developer to, to get the right information to the table at the right time. So we did produce the very first licensing and permitting guide for hydropower in Pennsylvania. We've received some pretty good feedback from some of the developers working in the state on, on that piece of information. So all this goes together. And I'm going to take you back in time a little bit to when <laughs> sustainability director of the city of Pittsburgh and the word sustainability, because it's a word I wrestle with, trying to figure out whether to use it, when to use it. What's it mean? Because you go back, the yeah. UN had a had a definition of it for a long time that talked about economic, environmental, and cultural or social impacts. Uh-huh. And is it a word that still works? Did it ever work? Should we be using it more, less? What do you think? Yeah, and and I think sometimes it's funny to remember that sustainability is actually a word in the English language completely separate from environmental concepts. I feel like it's been completely subsumed by this environmental or, you know, green movement. People forget that sustainability is an actual word completely separately. Um, I generally go back to the the UN uh, definition from the Brundtland Commission, which was like, I think, in the late 80s, maybe, um, that that talked about the balance between environment, economy, and um, society or way of life. And uh, that, for me, uh, is my favorite definition. It also is part of Peck's you know, mission or vision statement is this idea of this balance between those three pieces. Um, I think for any environmental project to be successful, it has to seek that balance. Um, but another definition that perhaps is easier to understand is just simply saying it's it's living our lives in such a way that we're not compromising the ability of future generations to live the same way. So if you're producing waste that are going to be around forever, if you're using up uh, resources on a time scale, it doesn't match when they'll be naturally re- replaced. Or if you're releasing pollutants into the atmosphere, or into the water, into the soil that some other generation is going to have to deal with the consequences of, um, those aren't really sustainable ways of living. So there's kind of two ways of looking at it, and I don't think they're mutually exclusive. All right. So you've been traveling the state, wandering back and forth, Harrisburg, Philly, Pittsburgh, working on energy and climate and everything else. Is it one state, uh, one set of issues? Are they different? Are people looking at different types of projects? What are you seeing out there? (laughs) That's That's a tough question to answer. As you know, I often meet with international visitors to to Pennsylvania, um, whether that's through Global Pittsburgh or through another organization. Um, and that's one of the questions I'm asked is to try and explain our state and the culture of it and the government of it. And I, I think it is true. There's a different outlook depending on where you live. And it's not just urban versus rural because Pittsburgh and Philadelphia are different cities with different interests. Um but I think when it comes down to it, we're all more similar than we are different. I mean, one of the things that we know, no matter where you live, is that projects related to to energy, I mean, I think really to any aspect of the environment, but I work on the energy piece of it, they're based on dollars and cents as much as they are on your ethical background or your interest in 
the environment. So that's one of the challenges for PEC is trying to figure out how do you make environmental projects make sense so that if somebody doesn't care about the environment at all, they can still perceive it as, hey, this is a good project. It has community benefits, has benefits to people, it has economic benefits, it creates jobs. And I think that's going to be really important moving forward with our new administration at the federal level. Um, you know, certainly PEC only works for the most part at the state level and the local level. But what happens at the feder- federal level is impactful to us. Um, So to the extent that we can look at how many jobs in Pennsylvania are resulting from the clean energy economy, our our partners at E2 recently put out a report that more than 66,000 Pennsylvanians are working in clean energy. That is not an insignificant number. About 80% of those jobs are in energy efficiency. So these are jobs that are, they're local. They're happening in local communities. They're not going to be outsourced. I know it's like a very cliche thing to say, but I mean, all of this relates to real dollars and cents and tax base and things that should appeal to even a very conservative or very business focused government. So with the Obama administration, you know, we saw some leadership in some of the national agencies that was very dedicated to climate protection. We may not see that in this next administration, but I think that we can still find the right connections to sell the type of work that we're doing because it makes good sense. Well, and do you also see in the economic stuff that the the ball is rolling? I mean, there are companies, corporations, individuals, small businesses committed to sort of the efforts, not necessarily committed to reducing climate impacts, but they're at least in that economy that's rolling and you really, in many ways, can't stop it? Absolutely. I think the green building sector is a great example of that. And it's not just in the cities. It's in rural areas. It's in it's in Rust Belt communities. Um, we're starting to see that more with renewable energy as well, particularly as the prices of some of these component parts come down um, with economy of scale. Um, I think the ball is definitely rolling. And part of what we want to do with this idea of a deep decarbonization strategy is make sure all those balls are rolling in the right direction instead of everyone kind of going their own way and trying to drive their particular uh, the particular resource that they work with. So as geeky as we've been in this conversation, there are there are real impacts and real implications going forward that get translated, hopefully, into true sustainability. So last question. What's your goal for 2017? Put you on the spot. <laughs> I, I, think, I think my biggest goal is really getting a great roadmap that comes out of this conversation we're starting with the conference. And part of that is making sure that there are a lot of different types of voices that are represented. I don't want this to be all renewable energy advocates. I don't want it to be all fossil fuel advocates. I want to try and get as many different sectors of the energy industry part of this conversation and make sure their concerns are being their concerns and their hopes are are being reflected in this document. You know, PAC did something very similar with its um, unconventional shale conference in 2010. And that white paper, people still refer to it today as a guiding document for some of that work. And I'd really like to see us put together a document that any any Pennsylvanian, any NGO, any uh, policymaker can look at, can understand, and can sort of see a path for their work moving forward as part of this vision. We're looking forward to it. 
That's Lindsay Baxter talking with David Woodwell about what's ahead for PEC's energy and climate program in 2017. We'll wrap up this series next week. Well, there's still time to register for that deep decarbonization conference before the rates go up, which happens soon. You can sign up at peck-climate.org. There you'll find more information about the agenda and the speakers. And for the next few weeks, we're also featuring a series of guest blog posts from some of those speakers and others to highlight the conference. It's at the main PEC website, which is, of course, at PECPA.org. And for even more on deep decarbonization, check out past episodes of this podcast. You'll find them on the website, too. Again, PECPA.org. You can subscribe in iTunes and SoundCloud or using your preferred podcast app. And when you do, please take a moment to rate and review the show. That's all for this week. I'm Josh Wallerson. Thanks for listening. Thank you.